0: Here, as Bo already mentioned, on a very brisk uh, Sunday morning. <coughs> Hopefully, your uh, juices are flowing this morning and uh, we can have a good study together in the Word of God. According to uh, dictionary.com, the word discouraged means to deprive of courage, hope, or confidence to dishearten or to dispirit. While the word discourage is only used a handful of times in Scripture, there are lots of other words, lots of other phrases that are used in Scripture, I think, that really capture this concept of discouragement. Uh, Phrases like distressed and dispirited, as is said to us in the Gospel of Matthew and Matthew chapter 9 at verse 36 at the very end of that chapter is uh, Jesus has looked at the crowds that have gathered around him and he looks at them as being people like sheep without a shepherd, people that are distressed and dispirited. Uh, That concept of discouragement is found in phrases like lose heart, such as in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 16 as The Apostle Paul has been talking for quite a bit uh, at length in that chapter about all of the things that he had to experience for being a a Christian, for being an apostle and a preacher of the gospel of Christ, as uh, he lists some of the things, the ways in which he suffered there in that chapter. And he says there that even though that is the case for his life, and that's the case for our lives as Christians, that we're going to suffer for the cause of Christ, that we do not lose heart that even though our outer man is decaying, that our inner man is being renewed day by day. And that concept of discouragement is seen in passages like 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 14, where the Apostle Paul is telling us how we need to interact with one another in the body of Christ, that we need to encourage, he says, those who are faint-hearted. And again, all of those kinds of words and phrases really, I think, ought to put a picture in our mind of discouragement. Although it certainly is true that the life of a Christian, one who is following Jesus Christ, is filled with just numerous blessings. Uh, We could spend hours today thinking about all the blessings that we have available to us In Jesus Christ, and the life of a Christian is filled with just a lot of benefits that people who aren't Christians don't have. But it's also true that being a Christian doesn't mean that we escape discouragement. We're going to deal with discouragement as children of God. And so, what I want us to do today in this session and in our worship period in a few hours is to look into the Word of God to see what God says to us about how we can defeat discouragement when it comes our way. So I've got five points, but again, we're not going to cover all five of those in this session uh, at this hour. But I want us to look at two things, two tools, if you will, that God gives us in His Word that we can use to defeat discouragement. And then, Lord willing, at the 1040 hour, we'll look at three more of those So as we think about defeating discouragement, I want us to look at this as a biblical how-to guide. How do you do that in your life? How uh, How do we do that in our lives? And the first thing I would say to you, and I think it's very important, is that we realize that discouragement is something that comes to all of us who follow Christ. As we read in passages like Ephesians chapter 6, beginning at verse 10... As the Apostle Paul is describing for us the armor of God that we are to put on, the whole armor of God so that we can stand against the wiles or the schemes, the tools of the devil, I would suggest to you first of all this morning that discouragement is a tool of the devil. It is one of many tools that he has at his disposal and he uses it against those of us who are Christians all the time. That's kind of the... Bad news, I guess, if you will. That is the reality of the situation that as long as we are living here in this earthly realm that is a world in which sin exists, discouragement is going to come to all of us in some way, in some form, at some point in our life. Discouragement really is no respecter of persons. It affects both men and women. It affects those who are young and it affects those who are old. Sometimes maybe we think about, well, those who are young, those who are still in school, those who are teenagers, early 20s, that are generally in good health and maybe everything seems to be going their way in life that surely they wouldn't deal with discouragement. Or we might think of someone who's older, maybe someone who is retired that doesn't have all the stresses and strains of their job and of bringing up children that they're past that stage of their life that surely they wouldn't deal with discouragement but discouragement comes to all of us wherever we are it comes to those who are rich and those who are poor and sometimes we we may kind of put people who are very wealthy up on a pedestal on a place where they really don't deserve to be and we think well Why would they ever be discouraged? Because they have enough money, enough assets to buy whatever they want to buy, to go wherever they want to go, to do whatever they want to do. But again, discouragement comes to all of us. And as we think about us as a body of Christians, the body of Christ here in this local place, discouragement comes to elders. Discouragement comes to deacons. Discouragement comes to evangelists. Discouragement comes again to all of us, and so all of us have to deal with it from time to time in our life. There's a lot of examples, I think, that we could look at in Scripture of those that we consider and those that God, the Holy Spirit who inspired the Scriptures, considered to be men and women who were faithful to God, uh, men and women who did a lot of great things for God in their life. But I want us to just look at two this morning, two examples of people who were discouraged, one from the Old Testament and one from the New. I want us to look first of all at Elijah, and maybe your mind was already going there. So turn back to the book of 1 Kings for just a moment, 1 Kings chapter 19, 1 Kings chapter 19. This, of course, follows the the great chapter of 1 Kings 18, uh, where Elijah is standing so strong and so tall for God. Uh, He is standing up to Ahab and Jezebel as they have uh, brought in false gods. They have brought in the uh, worship of uh, Baals and the Asherah. And they have been very successful, it seems, in turning God's people away from him uh, to serve these false gods. And Elijah has proven, really God has proven back in chapter 18, that he is Jehovah God. That he is the one who has made everything, the one who has created everything, the one who keeps everything going the one whom they should bow down and worship, that they should leave all these idols behind. And he has been so successful there in chapter 18 that after the people see this great demonstration of God's power, that they turn around and they follow Elijah's instructions that they're going to slay all the false prophets that are gathered here on this occasion. But then, as we know in chapter 19, things turn the opposite direction, at least from Elijah's vantage point. So let's read here the first four verses. 1 Kings chapter 19, beginning at verse 1. Now Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and even more, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And he was afraid, and arose, and ran for his life, and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, and came, and sat down under a juniper tree. And he requested for himself that he might die, and said, It is enough. Now, O Lord, take my life, for I am not better than my father's. Obviously, in this text, the word discourage is not used here, but I I don't know how we can come to any other conclusion than to say that Elijah on this occasion, he was very discouraged, maybe even to the point of being depressed. He has gotten to the point in his thinking, in his mind, that he's just thinking, I'm not better than anyone who has lived before me. You know, thinking about, again, the situation that, from our vantage point, he had been so successful in chapter 18 about helping people see his own people, the people of God, see who God really is and that these idols, these false gods are nothing. And yet he thinks, my life's not better than anyone else. Just go ahead and take my life now because I'm of no use to you. We're going to come back to this passage um, a little bit later on. Uh, I think it will be in our lesson at the 1040 hour. So, I kind of keep this in mind, but I just want to point out to you there as we think about Elijah, he's not only uh, important in the Old Testament record as he is referenced quite a bit and we know quite a bit about his life and about his his earthly ministry, but he's also referenced in the New Testament, isn't he? You know, when the people that were living during the t- days of Jesus, when Jesus asked his apostles, who do people say that I am? Elijah was among just a very select few that people said, well, he is Elijah, he's Jeremiah, he's one of the prophets, he was highly regarded among God's people. And yet, on this occasion, he was very much discouraged. I also want us to think about a great apostle of Jesus Christ, the Apostle Paul. Think about something that is said in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, uh, beginning at verse 12. 2 Corinthians 2 and verse 12, Paul writes here and he says, Now when I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ, and when a door was opened for me in the Lord, I had no rest for my spirit, not finding Titus my brother, but taking my leave of them, I went on to Macedonia. Again, the word discouraged is not used here, but it seems to me anyway as I read this passage that the Apostle Paul did something maybe that he rarely, if ever, did. As he's coming to Troas and there is a door that's open for him to preach the gospel of Christ, if Paul had an open door, he always took advantage of that, didn't he? But here he says, because Titus, his brother, his fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, was not able to come to him at this particular point, that he had no rest for his spirit. He was restless inside. That makes me think that perhaps he was discouraged at this particular point. And so he doesn't take advantage of the opportunity that he has there to preach the gospel, but he says he took his leave of them, and he went on to the region of Macedonia. We think of Paul as being a staunch defender of faith, don't we? (laughs) Of the faith, the gospel of Christ, and he certainly was. But he had times, he had moments in his life where he became discouraged. As I said to you just a few moments ago, we can look at a number of People, a number of examples throughout Scripture. But since Elijah and Paul and other faithful servants of God were sometimes discouraged, I think there is a lesson for us that we should not be surprised. We shouldn't be surprised when sometimes we face discouragement as well. And of course, the New Testament talks to us about that very thing. I want you to go to the book of James for just a moment. As you might remember, James is writing to Christians of his time that uh, were suffering for following Jesus Christ. They were enduring all kinds of trials and persecutions. But notice what he says as he begins this particular book back at verse 2 of chapter 1. He says, "...consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result." so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. I think it's interesting, at least to me, that James says that facing life's trials is not an if. Facing life's trials is a when. He says, when you face various trials, when you encounter various trials, and I believe that's very important for us to just pick up on that little word, when, because he's not saying, well, you might face trials. You may face discouraging situations in your life as a Christian. He says, no, you're going to face them. And all of us facing in discouragement in our life just for living here in this world that is tainted by sin. But how much more for those of us who have made the decision that we are going to follow Jesus Christ every step of our life. We are going to face trials in our life. And so then all of us will experience trials of various kinds, as he says here in this verse. We will experience trials to various degrees in our lives because we live in a very imperfect world. The Apostle Peter also writes to Christians who were suffering as a result of their decision to follow Jesus Christ. And notice something that he says here early on in The book of 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 6, very, very similar thought to what we just read here in James chapter 1 and verse 2. 1 Peter 1 and verse 6, he says, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. So, like James, Peter here, the Apostle Peter, is saying that Christians are often going to face various trials. My trial that that I face as a Christian is probably different from your trial that you face, and your trial is different from some other Christian's trial. But we're all facing these very challenging circumstances in our life, and facing these various trials can cause us, notice Peter says in this verse, to be distressed. That that again is tied into this idea of being discouraged. It can cause us to be distressed and can cause us to be saddened to the point that we become very discouraged. Uh, Over as Peter begins to end this particular letter, so he begins talking about the various trials that we're going to face, and we may be distressed or discouraged by them. Notice what he says with that same train of thought over in chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. Here's an encouragement, an admonition that he gives to us. He says, Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world." Because Satan is who he is, because Satan is our constant adversary, because he is doing everything within his power to try to pull us away from God, to try to bring us down, to try to discourage us and depress us. When he hits us with discouragement, the Apostle Peter says, here's the good news, okay? So it's kind of like the bad news there as he it begins the book, that you're going to face various trials in your life, just for living in this world that's very imperfect, that is marred by sin. But even more so, you're going to face various trials in your life because you have decided to come and follow Jesus. But here is the good news about that, that we can stand up and we can resist Satan. We can resist Satan if we will remain steadfast or firm in our faith. But when Satan hits us with discouragement, we can take comfort in knowing that God gives us the power to resist him, but also... We can take comfort knowing that we are not alone. Because as Peter says here at verse 9, there are Christians, there are God's people all over the world that are dealing with discouragement as well. Uh, Being as connected as we are in our world uh, through technology, through social media, uh, has a lot of disadvantages, I think but it also has some advantages. And one advantage I think for us as Christians is that we kinda know or we can know what is going on with God's people around the world. We can know that there are Christians that are in Ukraine that are suffering far greater than anything we have ever experienced in our life here in this country. We can know that there are Christians in the Middle East right now that are suffering various trials and they are suffering tremendously just for living in that war-torn part of the world. We can know that there are brethren in Africa that maybe don't have enough food to eat or don't have a, a roof over their head. We can know about Christians in this country that are suffering with all kinds of things. And we can take comfort, I think Peter is saying, in knowing that we are not alone. Because if the devil can get us in that mindset of thinking, hey, I'm the only Christian that is dealing with this trial that is struggling with this problem right now, we can get very, very discouraged. And so we need to know that we're not alone. Whatever the source of our discouragement is, maybe it comes from old age. Maybe it comes from loneliness. Maybe it comes from some kind of health issues that we are dealing with at the moment Maybe it is financial burdens that we are experiencing. Maybe it is pressure from our job. Sometimes the source of our own discouragement is really from ourselves, isn't it? It's because of our own failures. It's because of our own weaknesses. It's because of our own sins that we knew better. But yet we were weak in a moment and we gave into that particular temptation and we sinned. Whatever the source of our discouragement is, All of these verses that we've looked at on this point tell us that we can defeat discouragement by knowing that it comes to every one of us. Secondly, as we think about how we can defeat discouragement, we need to look to our great example, Jesus Christ. As you think about what is said to us about Jesus Christ, as you read through the gospel accounts, I'm not aware of any scripture that specifically says... (laughs) that uses the word discouraged in relation to Jesus Christ. But again, sometimes it talks about him uh, being troubled in spirit, especially as he came to the end of his earthly life before he was crucified. What I do know is that Jesus Christ experienced potentially discouraging circumstances throughout his earthly life. He, He got into some situations that could have caused him to be greatly discouraged. So I want us to think about just several of those and and to think about uh, what if we found ourselves in a situation like this. Go to the Gospel of Mark, first of all, in Mark chapter 6. These passages here on on this point about following Jesus Christ are all coming from the Gospel of Mark. (laughs) We've been studying through the Gospel of Mark in our men's class for a number of months now, um, and just a lot of... A lot of good things to learn about Jesus Christ. Uh, Mark chapter 6, let's begin our reading there at verse 1. Mark says, "...Jesus went out from there and came into his hometown, and his disciples followed him. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and the many listeners were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what is this wisdom given to him, and such miracles as these performed by his hands?" Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, and among his own relatives, and in his own household. And he could do no miracle there except that he had laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he wondered at their unbelief, and he was going around the villages Teaching them, so here Jesus has made made it back to his uh, hometown. Just to think about, if you could put yourself in Jesus's shoes at this particular point, uh, those of us who haven't lived in our hometown for a number of years—if uh, you have pleasant memories, if you have had a pleasant experience growing up. It probably does something to you mentally, doesn't it? Maybe even at this particular time of year, as you may be going back home, you know, to see your parents or to see relatives or friends that you don't get to see for a long time. It just fills our hearts, it fills our minds with nostalgia, with pleasant memories of our growing up days. But here, Jesus has come back home. And to think about as he comes home, to think about the reception or really the non-reception that he gets here, how discouraging it would be, at least potentially, to have your hometown reject you. You know, to have people that you have known for all of your life say, I don't really believe that you are the Christ. They, they don't have belief in his words. They don't have belief in the works that he is doing. And this is exactly what Jesus experienced on this occasion. He, he had gone lots of other places. where sure he had experienced rejection, but he'd also spe- experienced a lot of people who came to faith in him as the Christ, but to come back to those who should have known him best and even his own family. How discouraging that would be to any of us. As we continue quite a bit later in the Gospel of Mark, over in chapter 14, as Jesus is now down to the last few hours before his crucifixion, and he is here with his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, Let's read here Mark chapter 14, beginning at verse 32. Mark 14 and verse 32. Mark says that they came to a place named Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here until I have prayed. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be very distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. And he went a little beyond them and fell to the ground and began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass him by. And he was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch with me for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not come into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. Well, Jesus has spent some three plus years with all of his apostles. And his closest ones, as he has gone a little bit further into the Garden of Gethsemane, as he has taken these three, Peter, James, and John, with him, and then he leaves them in a spot, and he goes even further to pray to his father. Think about how discouraging it would be to see three of your closest friends sleeping in your greatest hour of need when he was needing them really to encourage him. And yet, that is exactly what Jesus experienced. As we continue reading here in the next section, Verse 43 down through uh, verse 50. Mark goes on to say, Immediately while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, came up accompanied by a crowd with swords and clubs who were from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now he who was betraying him had given them a signal saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him and lead him away under guard. After coming, Judas immediately went to him saying, Rabbi, and kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him, but one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as you would against a robber? Every day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me, but this has taken place to fulfill the scriptures. And they all left him and fled." We, we remember, of course, as we've just read here about Judas, we remember about the Apostle Peter, how Judas betrayed Jesus. He identified for the uh, religious leaders, for the guards, who Jesus was. And then Peter later on, even though Peter had just staunchly stood, stood up to Jesus previous to what we're reading here in Mark 14, and he had said, I'll never deny you. You know, I, I will go to the death for you. And Peter, as we just read here, that Mark doesn't, of course, uh, identify him as the one here at verse 47 who took his sword and cut off the ear of the high priest's slave, but that was the apostle Peter. (laughs) I think he was probably thinking, this is the way I'm going to solve the problem here. And he's thinking in a totally different way than the way that Jesus Christ is thinking. But how discouraging it would have been to just have been betrayed by one that you, Jesus, had handpicked to be your apostle. He had handpicked Judas to be among the twelve that would take the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ to the rest of the world. And yet he has betrayed him for 30 pieces of silver. And if, as if that weren't discouraging enough, after Judas has betrayed him, Jesus turns around to see all of his apostles flee. All of these men that he has has spent so much time, and he has put so much energy and invested so much in these 12 men, and then in his greatest hour of need, they all forsake him. This is what Jesus experienced on this occasion. No wonder that the prophet Isaiah says to us in Isaiah 53 and verse three, that Jesus Christ was a man of sorrows. Jesus Christ experienced discouraging situations just like we all do. And he came to earth and he experienced these and many more discouraging circumstances so that he could be our great high priest. So that he can understand as we read at the end of Hebrews chapter 4 that when we are discouraged that we can go to the throne of mercy and grace and we can find mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. He understands because he has lived here in this world that is so prone to discouragement. And so we need to look to our great example and follow him. If we truly are trying to be followers of Jesus Christ, again, we're going to experience trouble of all kinds, including discouragement. But when it comes, all we need to do is look to Jesus And if we will look to him, if we will focus our eyes and our mind upon him, we will find in him joy and we will find in him peace. Two other passages as we uh, close this session this morning. In John chapter 16, as Jesus is giving some final instructions to his disciples before he goes to the cross, Uh, notice he says this at the very end of John 16 as he is not trying to sugarcoat what they're going to experience when he leaves them. Yes, he's going to leave them uh, physically. He's going to return to his Father in heaven. But he's going to send the Holy Spirit to comfort them. Why would they need comfort? Because there would be times when they would get discouraged in the work that they were doing. To guide them into all truth, to help them remember the things that Jesus had told them. So in all of that, notice what he says here at verse 33 of John 16. He says, these things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation. That word tribulation really is the idea in the world you will have pressure. (laughs) You will deal with very tense, pressure-packed circumstances. But take courage, Jesus says, I have overcome the world, we, we can find joy, we can find peace in Jesus Christ, even in those very discouraging circumstances. And, and then we've looked at this passage recently in, in another sermon, I think, here in the last few weeks, but it never hurts to go back and, and read this again from Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, beginning at verse 1. The writer says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and the encumbrances that we experience in life, it could be discouragement. Not again that discouragement is a sin. Discouragement can lead us to sin, depending on how we respond to it. But he says we need to lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How do we do that? Fixing our eyes or looking to Jesus the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself. Why why is it so important that when we're dealing with trials in life, when we are suffering, when we are discouraged, why is it so important that we look to Jesus Here's the reason for that at the end of verse 3, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So that you will not grow weary to the point that you just become so discouraged and so despondent and so depressed about your circumstances that you say, I'm just going to chunk all this. We have to look to Jesus Christ. And the writer reminds us here that if we will focus our minds and our eyes on Jesus Christ. We will see Him and His suffering on the cross, but we will see that He endured that with great joy. And I'm sure that He endured that with peace as well. So we can defeat discouragement by looking to Jesus Christ. Well, our time's up this morning, so we'll have to stop here. But I hope you will keep these thoughts in mind as we again will look at. The second part of this lesson uh, after our Bible classes, but let's be dismissed to our classes at this time.